Well, it's a privilege to be gathered together with a small group of you this morning to sit under God's word. We uh, are thankful for the opportunity for a small gathering of us to come together under God's word. And also we're thankful that uh, many of the folks in our church will be able to listen to this message online as they gather in homes and small groups uh, in order to be under the word on this Lord's Day. And Uh, As we do all of these things, as we take all these measures, as I preach to a largely empty room, uh, we're reminded around every corner that these are strange days we are living in filled with trying circumstances. Uh, Frankly, uh, we have a lot of unanswered questions that we are facing uh, in the midst of this global pandemic, this outbreak of the COVID-19 virus. We have questions about our own personal health. We have questions about our country and how we will respond to this as a people. Some of us have significant questions about our jobs, our livelihood, our ability to put food on the table. And even in our own church, we have questions about how to continue when we can't meet all together. And frankly, as we face these questions, we're coming quickly to the realization that there's no playbook for these things. There's, there's no secret answer key. You know how you're going through a magazine and you do one of the puzzles and you can't figure out the answer, so you look at the bottom or you turn to page 149 and it's got all the answers. There's, there's no answer key for this. Uh, Doctors don't have an answer key for how to address this disease. They're working on it, but they don't have answers. Uh, Politicians certainly don't have answers. There's no playbook on how to handle a crisis like this. Employers and employees alike are struggling with the economic ramifications of all that is going on. And I can tell you for sure there's no playbook for pastors on how to lead a church through a health crisis like this. Uh, There was no global pandemic elective in seminary for me to take. Uh, These are new waters. These are uncharted waters. And as we face all of these circumstances, frankly, we should be humbled by them. We should be humbled by the fact that even our best experts are presently uncertain about exactly what should be done. This should be humbling to us. Our response should not be pride. Our response should not be to think that we have all the answers or we would know what to do. Our response should be humility. As we face a lack of clarity in the midst of the uh, coronavirus outbreak, we should be humbled by it. At the same time, the lack of clarity that we have about these issues should send us searching for answers. And not just answers about what to do now, but circumstances like these, as they humble us, should cause us to search for ultimate answers. Answers about life and death, answers about eternity, answers about more than just what we will do today, answers about what we will do for all of eternity. And as we grapple with these kinds of questions and search for these kinds of answers, we're left wondering, is there anywhere that we can turn in this time 
for reliable answers about a global pandemic? And of course, the answer to that question is yes. There is somewhere we can turn. And it's not Facebook, it's not Twitter, it's not your computer, it's not Delaware.gov, it's not NewJersey.gov, it's not cable news, it's not network news, it's not a blog. You can go there if you want. If you want reliable answers in times like this, then the place that you need to turn, the person to whom you must turn, is God. You see, many of our questions may never be resolved. We may never know exactly what's going on or what God is doing. But God has not left us without answers to the biggest, most important questions that we face in times like this. In fact, God has invited us to come to him with our questions, and he's even provided answers for us in his word. And so today, with this small group of less than 10 who's gathered around the word and for many who will be listening online, we're going to do just that. We're going to go to God and ask him specifically three questions in the midst of this global pandemic. And then we're going to search through his word for the answers to these questions. And the first question that we might ask God in the midst of a pandemic like this is, God, what are you doing? I mean, we look around at what's going on. We see all of these statistics. We see the spread of this disease. We see the response. We see the panic. We, 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 we try to navigate our way through all the perspectives and, and all the facts which are presented in different ways by different people. And it's easy for us to step back and just wonder what in the world is going on. To say, God, what are you doing? Now, the psalmist in Psalm 10, verse 1, asks a similar uh, question when he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There, the, the psalmist is, is grappling with difficult issues in life and wondering, Where is God? What is God doing? And certainly, we might ask that very question. What is God doing right now? Now certainly there's much that could be said to answer this question, but the short answer is simply this. God is doing what he's always done. God is at work this very second to bring himself glory by saving sinners and sanctifying his people. That's what he's done from the very beginning. That's what he continues to do now. And even as we evaluate the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we can see some specific ways that God is at work for his glory and our good in these circumstances. For instance, as we search through the scriptures, we see that one of the things that God is doing through this pandemic is that God is warning the culture. These circumstances, this spread of a disease to which we do not have a cure, it is a warning from God to the world, a warning that all sinners must repent and turn to God lest they face the eternal consequences of their sin. You see, God allows tragedies and crises like this 
to call sinners to repentance. Jesus clues us in on this work of God in Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus was presented with a question of basically what's going on in the midst of horrible circumstances. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here Jesus is responding to a tragedy in his own day when this tower fell and these individuals died. And, and, and Jesus' answer wasn't, look, this wasn't because they were worse sinners than anyone else. This is a reminder to all of us of our mortality. In fact, it seems like everyone now is an expert on mortality rates. Well, I, I, I know this, that the mortality rate for life is 100%. We will all die, whether it's because of a global pandemic or something else, we will all die. And when we die, we will face judgment. As Hebrew says, it's appointed once for a man to die, then comes judgment. And this global pandemic, amongst other things, is God warning the world of our own coming death. This is a kind reminder that each one of us has an appointment before our maker in which we will give an account for every word that we have spoken, every deed that we've done, every thought that we've had, every motive that we have treasured in our hearts. God is using these circumstances as a warning to call us to repentance to believe in Christ Jesus. In fact, maybe you're even listening to this recording and you don't know Christ as your Savior and you're scared of dying. You're scared of what's going to happen in all of these times. The Lord would comfort your fears by pointing you back to the gospel, by pointing you to the reality that Christ has died for sinners so that through faith in Christ, you do not need to fear eternal death. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can be prepared to die with the hope of eternal life. That's the comfort of the gospel that tragedies like these drive us back to. God uses circumstances like ours to call sinners to repentance. God also allows crises and tragedies and pandemics in order to confront specific idols. You may remember the, the account in 1 Samuel chapter 5 where the Philistines stole the ark of God. They put it in their own temple and uh, God knocked over their idol and chopped off his arms. The arms is the power of that false god. That's what it signified. God chopped off its power. And then God afflicted the people of that town with tumors and various physical ailments. Why? To demonstrate his supremacy over those idols, to show that he is the true God and these idols that they were worshiping were false. God still works in similar ways. In our own country, we're seeing that. 
We live in a culture that has idolized health, control, money, sports, and what's been taken away from us in the last month. All of those things. The Lord is using these tragedies to confront the idols in our culture and possibly even the idols in our own life to show that he is the only true God. And in the process of doing this, as God is, is, is calling sinners to repentance through all of this by reminding us of the reality of death and as he's confronting the inadequacy of idolatry, the Lord also uses circumstances like ours to condemn the hard-hearted who reject Christ. In fact, you'll probably be familiar with uh, the 10 plagues that God sent on the people of Egypt. What you may not be familiar with is the reality that uh, many of these 10 plagues were a, a, a direct assault on the various gods of Egypt. For instance, the Egyptians uh, worshipped the Nile. Well, what did God do? He turned all the water into blood. They worshipped the sun. What did God do? He shut the sun down for a period of time and brought darkness. They, uh, they worshipped the moon. Well, <laughs> uh, again, God sent darkness upon them. They also worshipped Pharaoh, their ruler, their king. He was said to be a god. Well, You'll remember that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Nine plagues came and Pharaoh only hardened his heart more and more. And in the 10th plague, the plague associated with the Passover, the Lord struck down the firstborn of every home in Egypt. The, Israels, uh, the Israelites, I should say, were spared this through the Passover, but Pharaoh was unable to stop it. Pharaoh and his own household experienced this judgment, this condemnation for his hard-heartedness. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. You see that? Pharaoh on his throne, pretending like he was a god, he was not able to insulate himself from the judgment of God. Those who go through these circumstances and harden their heart towards God will find themselves eventually condemned by God. That's why we must pray. As a church, we must pray that this pandemic would not harden the hearts of sinners, but instead that it would soften the hearts of people so that they might repent of their idolatry and turn to Christ because that's part of what God's doing. God is at work warning the culture. God is also at work chastening or purifying his church. You see, we as believers are not immune from the discipline of our God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how God disciplines us as his children. If you're a, if you're a father, you discipline your children for their good. Well, God is our heavenly father. He disciplines us for our good. Part of that discipline is God purifying his church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
In other words, it's not a bad thing if you suffer as a Christian. It's part of this world and it's part of what it means to be a Christian in this world. Which, by the way, if there is one positive that comes out of this coronavirus outbreak, I pray that it is the absolute destruction of the prosperity gospel in America. All those false teachers who say if you just have enough faith, then you won't get sick and you won't have any problems in your life. I wonder if they're going to hospitals to visit people who have been infected with coronavirus. I wonder if today those false teachers would hop on a plane and and go to China or go to Italy and visit people in their hospital beds today. I doubt it. They could. They got private jets, but they won't. Why? Because theirs is a false gospel that not even they believe in. And I pray that one of the things that happens is God is purifying his church, that that he will remind us all that if we suffer as Christians, we shouldn't be ashamed for that. The Lord providentially brings that into our life. So it says in 1 Peter 4, 16, do not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The Lord in these circumstances is chastening and purifying the church in America. He's chastening the evangelical church. A church that has drifted in so many ways. For, for decades, the evangelical church has prioritized putting together events rather than worshiping God. It's not a worship service, it's, it's an event. It's not a church, it's a venue. Well, what's happened now is that big events are impossible. I'm preaching to a largely empty room and basically every church in America is gonna be doing that this week. For years, the evangelical church is prioritized numbers over shepherding. Church has been about how many people that you can get there rather than how many people can we reasonably shepherd? How can we be faithful with those whom the Lord brings us should be our mentality. Instead, for years, as a result of the church growth uh, movement and pragmatism in the evangelical church, it's been about how big can we get this thing? How can we squeeze more people in? How can we advertise to get a large as crowd as possible? Well, that's been taken away. Big events and big numbers are now impossible, at least for a time. And to this, we could even point out that the evangelical church for decades has prioritized budgets over truth. We see it all over the place. Preachers are tempted to water down God's word because if you preach the truth, you'll lose people. And let's just be frank about it. If you lose people, you lose givers. And so we can't do that. We've got a budget to plan for. We've got a building to pay off. So in many, many churches, the truth has been watered down to protect the budget. Well, in all of this, budget planning is basically impossible for ministries now. No one knows how this is going to go or how long it's going to take. Which means all the things that the evangelical church has prioritized over the last decade or more, the events, the numbers, the budgets, it's all been taken away. Why? Because God is purifying his church. He's chastening his church. 
That's why we must pray that this pandemic would lead to the purification of the church. It would force the church at large to prioritize God's truth, to prioritize the shepherding of God's people, and to prioritize worship. In fact, that's one of the things that I want to see happen in our church. I'm convinced that we have been faithful in these areas. We haven't made church into an event. We're not concerned about numbers. We're concerned about shepherding those whom God brings. And we don't make decisions based on the budget. We make decisions based on God's truth. And yet, even in this, there's an opportunity for us to grow in our conviction, to grow in our love for the truth, to to, to grow in our skill in shepherding, even to grow in our desire for shepherding. One of my prayers is that as we're apart corporately, you as a church body would miss that kind of shepherding influence that your elders and other people have in your life, that you would, you would desire the regular body life that happens on Sundays and in our corporate gathering. And my desire is that even as you worship at home, you'll realize that it's no substitute long-term for being able to worship with all of God's people. And in that way, I pray that even in our church where these things have been convictions for a long time, I pray that this would have a purifying effect. That's what God's doing. He's warning the culture. He's chastening the church. And to this, we could also add that he's, through this pandemic, strengthening individual Christians. This is an opportunity for each and every one of us to grow in our faith. This is a reminder, as believers in Christ Jesus, that God values our faith over our comfort. God is not working for our good so that we'll be as comfortable as possible. God is working for our good so that we will be as Christ-like as possible which means we must grow in our faith. And that's the very thing that trials like this are designed to do. That's why very familiar passage, James 1 verses two through four says, count it all joy, my brothers, which by the way, I love the way James uses his language very carefully. He says, count it a joy. Why do I have to count something a joy? Because it doesn't feel like a joy. <laughs> he, if it felt joyful, if there was this kind of visceral, emotional, sensational feeling that was associated with trials that automatically happened, then James would have said, doesn't it feel great? But that's not what he says. He says, count or consider it all joy, my brothers, when you may meet trials of various kinds. This definitely falls under the various category of what we're going through now. He goes on and says, for you know, by the way, I love the certainty of James's language here. You know it. You may not feel it. You may struggle to believe it at times, but you know because of what scripture says, because of what you've been taught from this pulpit, because of what you've been taught in this church, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, we are lacking in toilet paper right now so that we won't be lacking in faith when we need it. 
That's what this trial is designed to do. This trial is designed, is designed by God to examine, to test our faith so, so that our faith will be able to endure anything, so that our faith will last to the end. The worst thing that could happen to you is not that you would catch the coronavirus. The worst thing that could happen to you is that you would stand before God without true faith in Christ. These trials are designed for us so that our faith might be strengthened. And and part of the way that the Lord strengthens our faith in circumstances like this is he forces us to exercise our faith. In other words, we have to use it. When, When our lives just continue on every day like normal, it's very easy to begin to walk by sight. I love a routine. I get up, I have basically the same thing for breakfast every morning. Baked oatmeal, a scoop of peanut butter, and a little honey. Basically every morning of my life, that's what I have. I read my Bible as I read my, uh, as I eat my oatmeal. Uh, I, I drink my cup of coffee. I have a routine. I have a rhythm of my week. Guess what? I've had no routine or rhythm this week. I've been having to do things that, that I've never done before uh, in, or in order to deal with some of the administrative issues in the church. Many of you are in the same place. Kids are home from school. People are home from work. People are working from home. There is no routine. There is no rhythm. What is that doing? Well, it's doing a lot of things, but part of what it's doing is it's forcing us to walk by faith rather than by sight. It's forcing us to trust in our Redeemer rather than trusting in our routines. God's forcing us to exercise our faith. And in the process, one of the things that God is going to do for you in this trial, you need to look out for it. You need to be open to it. Even now, you need to be examining your own heart because one of the things that God is going to do is he is going to expose your faith through this trial. Those areas where you have anxieties because of all this, those areas where you're struggling to to trust God in all of this, Those are all areas in which the Lord is exposing your faith so that you can recognize where your faith is weak and where you need to pray for help. Remember Mark chapter nine, where where the the father of the demon-possessed boy said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Well, those prayers are most effective when you actually see where your unbelief is. That father was doubting in either the power or the goodness of Christ to to help his son. He said, Jesus, if you can, will you help my son? He was either doubting Jesus' goodness to do it or more likely he was doubting Jesus' power to do it. So, So his weak faith was in Christ's power over disease and demon possession. The Lord exposed his faith so he knew where it was weak. Well, even this very day, this very week, this very month, the Lord is going to expose your faith so you will know where you need to pray for help. Don't run away from that. Don't excuse that. Don't minimize it. Don't say, well, I'm right to think this way because I read 12 articles on Facebook that confirm that we are all going to die and aliens are going to take over the planet or whatever they're passing around on Facebook now. That would probably be the least ridiculous thing that's been spread to me this week. Uh, Don't justify those fears. Recognize what the Lord is doing to expose your faith. 
pray that this pandemic would strengthen your faith in Christ so that it will endure to the end. Pray that it'll strengthen your fellow believers. Pray that it'll strengthen the faith of your children. Pray for our faith because that's how God is working. God is at work. He's warning the culture. He's chastening the church. He's strengthening Christians. A crisis does not change the fact that God is at work glorifying himself and saving souls in the process. He's doing a saving and sanctifying work even through these trials. That's what he does. That's what he's doing. But this leads us naturally to another question. The second question we might ask God in the midst of a pandemic, and that is, God, what do you expect? Okay, God, we we, we know something of what you're doing, but what do you expect from us? What are we supposed to do in all this? What's our responsibility? How are we supposed to respond? And frankly, this might be the easiest question to answer since our circumstances don't change the fact that Christ is Lord and he's worthy of our allegiance. You wanna, you wanna know what God expects? Well, in short, what God expects, what your responsibility is, it's to remain faithful to Christ. That's it. Faithfulness has always been our duty and it continues to be our duty in these times. We must remain faithful to Christ and we can be faithful and we can show Christ our allegiance in some specific ways from scripture. For instance, one of the ways that you can remain faithful to Christ and show him your allegiance in the midst of this pandemic is to battle anxiety. Battle anxiety. God expects for you to battle anxiety in your heart. There's some practical ways that you can do this. Read fewer articles, watch a little less news, spend more time in prayer, spend more time in God's word. Fill your mind with truth. Go to passages like Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six makes it clear that you must battle anxiety in part because it's a useless response to your circumstances. I'll tell you what, you be anxious all you want, all day today. I'll not be anxious today, all I want. And then at the end of the day, we'll see who's accomplished anything to stop the coronavirus. And the answer is neither one of us are going to, except I had a much more enjoyable, worshipful day than you. Anxiety is a useless, prideful response. The idea that by fretting over it, we can do anything makes us out to be God. As if my concern accomplishes anything. As if my desire accomplishes anything. No, that's God who wills things to take place. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Does the Lord call us to be wise and use wisdom? Of course he does. Do we need to use prudence in this life? Absolutely. Should we take these things that are going around us seriously? 
We certainly should. We are as a church. That's why we're not meeting all together this week. However, will our anxiety accomplish anything? Will it save a single life? Will it extend a single life? It will not. We must battle anxiety because it's a useless response. And not only is it useless, but it's also faithless. Anxiety is not responding in faith to our circumstances. In fact, verse 28 of Matthew chapter 6 goes on and says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Why? Because anxious is not a response of faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or posting on Facebook pictures of empty grocery store aisles. I added that. Jesus didn't say it, but I think it's the right implication. For Gentiles seek after these things. Unbelievers are fretting about these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In other words, when you are anxious, you're not trusting in God. You're not trusting in the fact that God sees you in your need. You're not trusting in his care for you. It's not a response of faith. You say, what is a response of faith then? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We have enough responsibilities today in serving the Lord that we don't have to be anxious about tomorrow. Anxiety is a faithless response. And by the way, it's a faithless response that will rob you of peace and hope. Philippians 4 talks about this issue of battling anxiety. And in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I trust that you're obeying that command even this week. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Which that's really helpful instruction in these days, isn't it? Are you responding reasonably based on the facts in front of you and based on the Lord's care for you? Let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord's watching. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you allow anxiety to rule in your heart, you will be robbing yourself of the peace of God which protects you in your relationship with Christ. But if you go to the Lord in prayer, if you respond with reasonableness and trust in the Lord, then your heart will be guarded. You will maintain hope. That's why we must battle anxiety. What does God expect from you? He expects you to battle anxiety. And by the way, 
To this, we could also add, he expects for you not to add to the anxiety of others. When people are passing around misinformation, unsubstantiated stories, uh, chain emails, chain text, Facebook stories that, that are unverified and, and not reliable, you run the risk of tempting your neighbor or your brother or sister to anxiety. Take that seriously. You do not want to be a stumbling block to your neighbor because we all have a responsibility to battle anxiety. Additionally, something else that God expects from, this, uh, expects from us in this time is to obey authorities. Of course, we're reminded of this in Romans chapter 13. God expects for you to obey the authorities that he has placed over you. That's another reason why we're not meeting all together as a church this week. That's why many of you are having to listen to this on the recording. That's why uh, there are so few people here today because the authorities that God has placed over us have asked or in some cases demanded that we not meet in large groups. And so we are going to honor those authorities because of what God's word says. We have a responsibility to obey the civil authority. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, we need to obey our authorities as best we can because God is the one who has placed them over us. The, the only exception to that would be if the authorities over us demand us to disobey God, then of course we have to obey God. Romans 13 goes on in verse 2 and says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Isn't that interesting? When, when, when we resist the authority, we're essentially resisting the providential authority that God has placed over us. And it says, And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? then do what is good and you will receive his approval. In other words, there, there is, a, I think, a genuine concern. Could this become a situation where the government persecutes the church? Yes, our elders have considered that. We've prayed through that. We've, we've thought through that. But this passage right here says one of the ways that you can avoid government authority is by being a good citizen as long as you can. By, by, by honoring and recognizing the authority of the government as long as you can. So, so according to Romans 13, the worst thing that we could do right now in terms of setting up the possibility of persecution is to disregard and disobey and resist the authority that, gov uh, that God has placed over us. Think about how many problems that would lead to. Think about if we disobeyed what the governor has said and we met with, with, with our entire church and then something happened. Something spread from that. Somebody died because of that. Is that likely? Probably not, but it certainly could happen and would that be uh, an opportunity for the government to then come in and uniquely oppress our church? Absolutely. And it's something that Romans 13 specifically warns us of. So what are we going to do? We're going to do what's good. We're going to do what 
we've been ordered to do as long as we can. Remembering, first, or excuse me, Romans 13 says, for he, that's the governor, that's the ruling authority, is God's servant for your good. Look, I'm a small government guy and there's plenty to criticize. Just go to the DMV. However, a too large, bureaucratic, big government is better than no government. We can be thankful that we live in a society that does have controls and checks and balances, even if we don't always appreciate how they are used. If you're forced to stay home from work, if your kids can't go to school, if, if you can't go to work, whatever, whatever might come of this, at least at this point, we can look and say, well, there are inconveniences or I might not handle it this way, but it's better to be in a society that has some ruling authority over it than to be in total anarchy. Romans 13 goes on and says, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, God's giving a punishing authority to the government. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And you might say, yeah, but if Paul knew about the leaders we have, he would have put it differently. I got news for you. Do a little, do a little historical uh, study on the, the Caesars of Rome and, and Paul's writing to Roman people in Rome. No, they, their, their governing authorities were far worse than ours and it's not even close. Might get there, but it's not close now. Paul says in verse five of Romans 13, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Isn't that interesting? We, we should obey the authorities because God's put them over us. We should obey the authorities because it's for our good. They're acting in public safety. But we should also obey our authorities so that we can have a clean conscience before God and a good testimony before our neighbors. Verse six says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. God expects for us to obey the authorities as long as we can. Battle anxiety, obey authorities. Another thing that God expects from us, God expects us to love one another, whoever the one another might be. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, we have a responsibility to prefer the good of our neighbor. And that affects us in all kinds of ways. You go to the grocery store, you're trying to find stuff. It affects even potentially how much toilet paper you buy. Because if everybody goes and stocks up, then there's not enough for, for everybody. So what do you do? You take what you need. Remember, remember this, is, this is a horrible illustration from one of my favorite movies of all time, but remember in It's a Wonderful Life, there's a big run on the bank and, and, and the building alone is about to go out of business. And, and, and uh, ba- Mr. Bailey says, just what do you need? And the one guy takes all, his, I'll, have, I'll take all my money out now. And you just want to punch the guy in the face. No, we're trying to stick through this together. And then the, the sweet old lady who's also the grandma from the Walton says, you know, I need like $29 or whatever, whatever the amount is. And, and he says, I could kiss you right now. She just took what she needed. Why? Because she was thinking about the whole group and how the whole group could get through that. That might be one way that we apply this need to love one another. But whatever that looks like, we owe love to our neighbor. 
In fact, it's interesting in first, excuse me, Romans 13, right after saying that we need to obey the authorities, it says in verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, one, uh, uh, loves another has fulfilled the law. Then in verse 10, it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. We have a responsibility, even in the midst of all these circumstances, to think and act in such a way that promotes the good of as many people as possible. That's part of the reason why we canceled our services. Just for the public health, the public safety of all, to make sure that we can help as much as we can based on what we know to stop the spread of this virus. It's an act of love, we pray, towards our neighbor. And in the midst of this, we need to prioritize loving our neighbor. And to this, we could also add that God expects for us to serve the assembly. We've got to battle anxiety, obey the authorities, love one another, and then serve the assembly. Serve the assembly of the church, even when we can't assemble. Isn't that interesting? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now just a quick word on that. Because we're not able to meet this week, you're not neglecting the gathering together. There is no gathering together. There is no meeting. So you're not neglecting it. But I would encourage you that even though we're not meeting, you still have a responsibility to make sure that you're not neglecting the assembly. Not necessarily the meeting, because we can't meet, but you're not neglecting the congregation, your church family. In fact, even though we temporarily can't meet, this passage does say that we need to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Well, we still need to do that. We're going to have to get more creative because we're not all going to be together. But we still have the opportunity to serve one another by considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. It also says that we should be encouraging one another. Well, even though we temporarily can't meet, there are plenty of ways that we can encourage one another. We're trying to do that as elders. We're trying to put that together. You've seen emails going out. We're putting together video conference calls on Zoom. We're going to have more information coming out about midweek Bible study and, and even a Sunday night Bible study that we'll do uh, via video conference. Look, we recognize it's not the same. As soon as we can meet together, based on Hebrews 10, we're going to meet together. But in the meantime, while we cannot do that, we have to focus on the stirring one another up to love and good works and encouraging one another as the day draws near. That's what we have to do. We have to make sure that we are serving the assembly, serving the body. You have to make sure that you are seeking to meet the needs of your church family, even if some of those needs are practical needs. There are some who are already out of work. There are some who have been affected by this in their business. If this persists, there will be practical needs. We need to consider that. If we get this big tax stimulus, or, or, or not tax stimulus, but they're talking about sending checks out in the mail to every household. If we get those, then we need to be conscientious about what we do with that and how we can use that to serve one another rather than just plan our next vacation. I don't think you're going to be traveling anytime soon anyway. 
We need to think about those practical needs like they did in the early church when no one had a need because they were all taking care of one another. Look, the world is worried about one thing, survival. The church doesn't have to worry about that though. The Lord promised the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. We don't have to worry about survival. The the one thing we should be worried about isn't survival, it's serving. We have to serve one another. If that means picking up the phone and calling somebody, if that means writing a note, if that means meeting together in smaller groups, go to the park, do whatever you can to make sure that you are serving the needs of the body because a crisis does not change the fact that we owe our full allegiance to Christ. And by the way, he's worthy of that allegiance. What does God expect from us? Faithfulness. Following Christ, allegiance to him That's what God expects. Which leads us to one last question that I think might be helpful for us to consider as we navigate through all of the issues of our day. This third question that we might ask God in the midst of this pandemic is pretty simple and it's, God, what do you promise? What do you promise? It should be our habit as uh, Christians to constantly run back to the promises of God for comfort and instruction. God has not been silent about what he plans to accomplish in history, and he has not been silent about what he promises to those who wait on him. In fact, we recognize that true hope and endurance can never come from our circumstances. If you want hope, if you want to endure, it's not by looking to your circumstances that those things occur. No, those things occur by believing in the promises of God. That's what we need to do. Remember the song, Standing on the Promises? This is a great time to stand on God's promises to remind our hearts of what God has assured us of. And look, there are too many promises from God for us to consider them all today in this study. But I do think a few promises might be encouraging to our hearts. For instance, it's encouraging for us to remember that God has promised salvation to all who put their trust in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, 13, verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If, if, if you're listening to this study, if you're listening to this message and you're scared of death because of all that's going on, you see that God is calling you to repentance, just know that the way to repent, the way to turn to God and be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ. And the promise that we have is that all who have called on the name of Jesus Christ, all who have put their faith in Christ, all who entrust themselves to the Lord will be saved for all of eternity. The salvation from God includes the forgiveness of every sin that you have committed. It's a full pardon. The salvation from God includes your justification before him, a right standing in his kingdom so that you can be a citizen of a kingdom of light, of a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom in which there are no viruses going forward. And this kingdom 
that comes through this salvation includes the guarantee of eternal life. Eternal life with God, eternal life in glory, eternal life with no coronavirus, eternal life with no pandemic, eternal life with no mortality rates to worry about. All of these can be yours today by believing in Christ Jesus. And if you already have believed in Christ Jesus, then this promise is yours. Stand on it. Stand on it. You have the promise of salvation. And to this, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you also have the promise of sanctification. God has promised the sanctification, the the making us to be holy, the conformity to Christ of all those who believe in the Lord. We mentioned from James 1, we've alluded to Hebrews 12, but in all these things, the Lord is training and disciplining us so that we can share in his holiness. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, that human fathers discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, listen to this, that we may share in his holiness. What an amazing gift that is, that God would share his holiness with us through Christ Jesus. And we can trust that God will use this trial as a means of grace to make his people more like Christ. That is a better promise than any kind of temporary comfort. If I offered you a life of trials that led to Christ-likeness or a life of comfort that lead to hell, you better pick the life of trials that lead to Christ-likeness every time. God is using this trial for that purpose. He's using this trial as a means of grace to prepare us to eternally share in his holiness. And his holiness is a much greater promise than temporary health. All of this is preparing our hearts, preparing our souls to be more like Christ and to be set apart in this world that needs Christ. By the way, you know what's more important than having lots of economic opportunities? It's having lots of opportunities to share the gospel. In fact, even this week, I heard from one of our church members that, hey, this is, I've seen my neighbors more this week than I have in years, because they're all outside trying to get fresh air, and they're usually at work or school I heard from our missionaries in Italy. I said, how's it going? What can we pray? And he said, the best thing you can pray for now is, is all the evangelistic opportunities that we've had because of this. People reaching out to us and they want to know about the gospel because they are afraid of dying. The Lord is setting us apart as a people so the world sees that we respond differently, that we have better promises than they have. They will come to us for answers. That's why Peter said we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. But here's the thing, if you're not living with that hope, if you're not acting in that hope, if no one can see the difference between you and a hopeless world, then no one will ask you about the hope. We need to allow the Lord to use these circumstances for our holiness so that we'll have those opportunities. We have that promise, the promised of being conformed to the image of Christ. 
That's a sweet promise. Stand on it. One last promise I want to remind you of. It's a promise that I've been holding to this entire week. It's the promise of God's sovereignty. In other words, just the biblical truth that he is in control. He's sovereign. He's sovereign over an uncontrollable virus. This virus has shut us down, (laughs) but it will not stop God. He's, he's, He's sovereign over all the unpredictable responses. We don't know what people are gonna do. For many, it's the response, the potential panic that's scarier than the virus. But many of these things were shocked. Friend, God is not surprised by any of this. He is sovereign over these unprecedented times. We've never seen anything like this before, but God ordained it before the world began. He's in control. And I mention that to you as a promise because what a comforting truth it is to know that the good and trustworthy God is in control of every molecule in the universe. One of my favorite verses that I go to quite often comes from Psalm 119, verse 68. Normally I just focus on verse 68, but I think verses 67 and 68 are particularly helpful for us. Listen to what it says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I was afflicted. I thought it was bad. But that affliction drove me back to your word. That was good. Now I see you're good. You always do what's good. And that certainly is true today, just as it was true for the psalmist. God continues to be good, and we can trust his goodness. We can entrust ourselves to him. We can submit our lives to his sovereign control. Look, there's a lot of questions that we have. Not a lot of answers that we're receiving. And frankly, God may keep it like that for quite a while in order to humble our hearts. We have to be aware of that reality. If the Lord's doing a humbling work, he's, he's going to stick with it until he completes the job. So if he's got to humble me by preaching to an empty room with just a few friends and church members here and having to call church members all over the place to figure out what's going on, if he's humbling our church by showing us our total dependency upon him, even for our operating expenses, if he's gonna humble us by not even knowing what facts to rely on as we turn on the news, if he's gonna humble us in all these ways, we've gotta let him. We've gotta let him. It's a reminder of how little control we really have over our lives. We like to pretend that we're in the know and in control, but then God sends us circumstances like this to remind us that he's the only one who knows all things and controls all things. And so it may be that the Lord persists in these circumstances in order to humble our hearts. That may be, I don't know. 
But I do know this, no matter how long this goes on, and no, no matter how much humbling the Lord has to do, he's not left us in the dark. He's not left us without answers. You may not have all the answers. You may not know what you're gonna do for work. You may not know what your kids are gonna do for school. You may not know a lot of things, but the Lord in his word has given you the answers that you need for life's most important questions. In other words, God has given us sufficient truth to trust in him in these days, and that's what we must do. We can trust the Lord and continue to serve him even in the midst of a global pandemic. We pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We pray that you would use them to shepherd our hearts. We pray especially for our church family that you would strengthen us and purify us and humble us in all of these circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be diligent to serve the needs of the church. We pray for shepherds and leaders to be diligent to shepherd the flock of God that has been entrusted to us. Pray for members of our congregation to be receptive to cheesy but necessary digital shepherding. Pray that you would help us to find ways to disciple one another. Pray that the body life in all of these circumstances would persevere We pray that through these circumstances that you would cause us to appreciate and love the corporate gathering of the church even more. Lord, we thank you for these opportunities to connect via the website and recordings and things like that. But at the same time, we also recognize that long-term these things are insufficient. Lord, we recognize that we need to be together And right now, we're trusting you to bring us back together. Lord, there's a sadness in our heart over all these things. We pray that you would comfort us in these times and help us to comfort one another as best we can. Lord, we trust you. And we are so thankful that in the midst of our own confusion and even our own sadness over these things, that we can also face all of this with a joy and a confidence in knowing that you are in control and that you are doing a good work. Lord, you are good. You do good. We believe that. We profess it. And we depend upon it today. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.